You're listening to a podcast from the Media Motel. Coming up this week in episode 550, Boiling Point, the drama of one-take movies, even more drama at award ceremonies, and plagiarism, pop music and Keith Chegwin. That's all coming up after New Order and Crystal. We're like Crystal. Don't care. 
one of 27 UK top 40 singles. Mm. How many top 40 singles have New Order had in the States? Uh, not many, I'm saying two. Oh. True Faith and Regret, and 32 oh. for True Faith, uh, 28 for Regret, um, against 27 in the UK. The, the albums have sold well in the States. Mm. This was their big comeback single after oh. a hiatus of eight years. From 2001, number eight in the UK, New Order and Crystal. I think I knew Blue Monday before that, but I didn't know much else about New Order before that. I was at Sixth Form College when that came out, and I saw them do it on Jules Holland, and I absolutely loved it. I've still got the CD single of that knocking around somewhere as well as the album. I was a, a huge fan of it from the off. Yes. Um it, it was a, it was a really big comeback as well, wasn't it? Because yeah. uh, uh, they they'd been away. They put out a couple of sort of greatest hits and remixes and so on, and then suddenly blasted back with this. It's excellent. Absolutely. Welcome to the Parish Council. It's episode 550. I'm Terence Dackham and she don't want no scrub. It's <laughs> Juliet Harris. A scrub is a is a something that ain't get no love from me. I yeah. think that was that was another record from my formative years. Anyway, hello, good morning and welcome, everybody. It's, it's all that hanging out the passenger side of your best friend's yeah, ride. Whilst he, whilst he was trying to holler at me. Yes, I, it's I, dangerous, really. <laughs> I had to say, though, firstly, that is a fantastic song. And secondly, mm. a sign that it is a fantastic song was I, I may have spoken about this at the time. I think we might even have played the version. I mm. went to um, see a band called Big Joni. Oh, uh, yes, December we did play it. Mm. And they did a marvellous version of that. Yes, which, we if you did. can find it in podcast Passim, then do. Yes. Otherwise, check out the song because it is yes. a fantastic version with a stand up drummer, if I remember correctly, as well. It was great. <laughs> Now, movie making has always been pretty good at working along with new technology, new styles of working. Um, it's not long ago that it was a sensation when directors began making relatively serious films by only shooting on iPhones. Mm. But now this this in relative terms becoming it's becoming more common. Yeah. It's. Uh, it's arguable that iPhone movies, they looks a bit better on a home TV screen than on a huge movie theater yeah. screen. But. Even that we're talking about shooting a top quality movie on a device the size of what a cigarette packet is mm. incredible in itself. Yeah, mad. Generally, smaller, more mobile cameras have led to an upsurge in one shot or one take films where a full length movie is filmed in one long take by a single camera. And two years ago, the movie 1917 had 10 nominations at the Oscars and won three shot entirely on a mini camera with the one-shot technique. Well, this week, we've been watching a movie starring Stephen Graham, shot entirely in one location, using only one camera, and all, the entire movie, shot in one take. Uh, Jules, how well did the, the, the one-take style work for this new movie, Boiling Point? Well, for me, it worked absolutely fantastically. So, so to so to explain the sort of the premise for Boiling Point, um, Boiling Point stars the incredible Stephen Graham. He was also involved in making the film with his wife Hannah Waters, who um, is also in the film in another role. And it follows. Um, he plays a chef. And they are basically his life is kind of there are a lot of things going on for uh, for Stephen Graham's character that are all sort of 
well reaching boiling point at once hence the title so we we, we meet this sort of the, the the him in the restaurant and all of his colleagues in the restaurant and, and the diners in the restaurant on what's called mad friday which is the last friday before christmas this is obviously set in non-pandemic times and um and we i thought the one shot thing was brilliant for this because it was just it was the whole film was basically like a long sort of scream, wasn't it? Really, mm. you know, from the very beginning that, that that Stephen Graham's chef is, you know, the fact that he is late for work and is obviously apologising to a child on the phone. You realise that he's very much on the edge already, and it was just relentless. It did not let up the pressure that they were all under that you could feel as a sort of a, as a, as a person watching the film. The one shot thing was so good for that because there was no let up. There was no break. There was no moment to breathe. It it just kept going. And I thought that was such a clever way of expressing the sort of the pressure. And I found that it kept my concentration throughout as a result. I didn't have a moment. My mind didn't have any time to wander because you know, the different situations that kept popping up were constantly thrown at you. And the one shot thing just added to that. I thought it was great. I, I love this film that the, the one shot, one camera, uh, one small location gave it, um, I would say a very claustrophobic case, yeah, but that works, absolutely. works so well because of the plot. Um, it, yes, in a way it did. It did feel like watching a fly on the wall documentary. It, yes. it, it didn't take long until I felt I was actually there almost <laughs> yes, eavesdropping on the like, events. I felt like I knew those people. By yeah, then. exactly. I, really did. <laughs> it, I felt uncomfortable, but in a good way, yes, um, in the way that a movie or a TV show can put you on edge. Yeah, there was this overwhelming sense of foreboding you just yeah. know that something is going to happen in boiling yeah. point but will it be the racist man on table seven yeah. or the discarded spliff by the bins uh, yeah. or, or something else you know something exactly and, there was, everything was kind of laced with sort of tension yes. or there was there was everything had a potential consequence i thought all of the performances were outstanding mm. as well i really believed every single person from i thought vinette robinson as Carly, the, the the head chef's partner, was was uh, by partner I mean business partner. She was magnificent. Uh, Hannah Waters herself, as the did, who didn't have a big role as the pastry chef Emily, but sort of really did. She was a rare moment of warmth in it. I felt amongst all of the other sort of characters. And Stephen Graham is just well that it, it. I wonder if it was written for him because that really it really was him at his most Stephen Graham esque. I thought it was brilliant. Yes, I did enjoy it. Absolutely superb cast. I, I too, particularly noted uh, Vinette Robinson yeah. as Carly. I thought she was outstanding, yes, was. as was Stephen Graham, who was both both bully and victim. Yes, um, so absolutely. one both sort of felt annoyed with him, but also sympathised with him, which is a, a devilish technique to pull off. Um, loved the supporting cast too, as you say. Yeah, overall, it was a sort of parable um, about the sheer gnawing power of stress. Yeah, um, absolutely, wasn't it? It was It was really... Um, and also, it, it, I love the dynamics of it as well and the fact that, that the members of staff... There was difference, and maybe that was gender, I don't know, but the, the, the rather hapless poor waitress, I think her name was Andrea, who was who bore the brunt of the racist man at table seven, was blamed for everything by everyone. Yet the, the, the dopey kitchen bloke, Jake, who was literally dopey, who was late and then popped off to buy drugs halfway through, was sort of indulged, despite the fact that his behaviour was appalling. There was so much going on in this film, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. It's highly recommended then by both of us. Mm. Boiling point. Um, it's available now on Netflix. 
Coming right up, horror stories from award ceremonies. That's next after Alfie Templeman. Always acting strange. fond of well I can't believe I'm saying this to us. I'm increasingly fond of algorithms I was I often listen to things on um I on Apple Music iTunes and it started doing this thing and I presume this, this is meant to ape Spotify and other things like that where 
you, the thing you're listening to finishes. Mm. And if there's nothing to play after that, if you haven't queued up anything else, it just starts playing things it thinks you'll like. So sometimes it'll come, it'll come from your own collection and sometimes it'll be other things. As a result of which, I heard this the other day. I can't remember what the jumping off point was. It might have been something by Jungle. That seems likely. And, uh, you know, young person's pop music. And, um, and it threw this at me. And I thought it was fantastic. I wasn't really familiar with him, but I thought it was a an enjoyably sunny song. I think I might have heard this when it was still sunny before the weather kind of turned in the rather brutal way that it did. But I really like this and I will definitely try and investigate more of his stuff. That's Happiness in Liquid Form by Alfie Templeman. Yes, I, I had heard of him, but not heard his work. It's, it's, it's a really, really strong uh, song. Still only 19. And um, <laughs> I, I checked him out. He's on tour right through the summer and playing it just about every festival there is in the UK. So you may a lot of listeners may come across him just uh, by going to festivals this year. Absolutely. Oh, gosh, one of the most excruciating nights of my life was being invited to a major awards ceremony i i still i just i'm I'm getting hot in the face now just thinking oh, about wow. it afterwards it was um i i'd worked in a consulting role on a movie it was about 10 years ago and re- i received a phone call the day before the awards saying that the director wouldn't be able to make the ceremony and would i accept the award the award if it, if, if it was given we, we kind of been hinted that the film was going to win um, go to the dinner. Uh, I was promised I didn't have to make a speech if I didn't want to, which cheered me immensely. So <laughs> I, I thought, great, take my girlfriend, show off a bit. Yeah, Turned yeah. up, uh, as I say, been tipped off. We were likely to win. And then the the um, those famous words and the winner is and it was our movie. So up I get okay. with a beaming grin heading to the yeah. stage. When from a table nearer the stage than me, there is the director who had turned up after all. Oh, no. Nobody had told me. And there he was climbing the steps to the stage to general applause. And um, he, he, he turned up, as I say, after all, was making his opening remarks as I tried to quietly return to my seat. Oh, no. While people all around the room stared at this interloper who had tried to steal uh-huh. the moment from this award winning director. And it got even worse because I tried to explain to the people at my table and it just kind of made it worse because um, oh, they were God. kind of, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. So I still have hot flushes oh, thinking about this. What a nightmare. I am oh, sorry. you were so, putting that. I mean, you really are the Larry David of this podcast. Really, really, really am. Yeah, I, honestly, I still, it's 10 years ago, I still think about this, you know, for at least once a month. Um, but Jules, apart from when um, one guest slaps another across the face, these, <laughs> these award ceremonies, no one cares anymore. I mean, there's too many of them. They're tiresome, predictable, ban all award ceremonies. I I love the fact that you're incredibly liberal on things like freedom of speech and you defend it, yet you're very keen on banning things in sort of blanket fashion and setting things on fire. I've noticed this about you, Terence. Anyway, um, I don't disagree with you, really. Yeah. It's It's... It just seems to be that I think part of the problem is they are all too long, Terence. They all go, particularly the Oscars. There has to be a song and a literal song and dance about it. They they have multiple hosts. I really don't see the need for that. I mean, I mean, perhaps there was a need this year in that somebody other than Chris Rock hosting was probably preferable, I think, Mm. given what happened. But um, I just think they're just it's the speeches. And uh, Aisha Hazarika has written this um, brilliant piece 
in The Guardian, um, saying that um, the organiser this year, Oscars, instructed all nominees to keep their speeches short and sweet. I suppose <laughs> one of <laughs> one of Will Smith's speeches was shorter than spe- and sweeter mm. than the other, wasn't it, really? That the, the planned one was better, I felt. Anyway... Um, I love this quote from from Aisha. They're right. Where does it all lead to? Channeling Gwyneth Paltrow, weeping while thanking your dad's butcher's chiropodist. No, I don't care how painful those bunions were. Mm. I regularly host award ceremonies and they can be great fun, but the producers are very strict. Winners rarely get to make an exception speech on the grounds that we only have the room until midnight. There's usually a nice slick film all about the nominees. The winner's name is read out by me or a guest presenter. They come onto the stage, they get a shiny trophy and have a photograph taken to a rapture applause and uptown funk playing very loudly i mean that is i'm absolutely into this it's you know you can uh, award ceremonies perhaps have a function but you know it maybe it's you know maybe it's nice if you if you're told that your film was better than anyone else but who is telling you that your film was better than anyone else what value does that have i suppose really like many things in life and in industries it just comes down to it you can make someone can make more money next time off the fact that your film is is award-winning is it isn't it i suppose but yeah like you i i just think they're a bit tedious if they were shorter if they took the the aisha hazarika approach you know yeah fine i'll go and grab an award and have my photo taken to uptown funk that sounds great but um it's it's perhaps it's not so entertaining to watch but does anybody actually watch these award ceremonies apparently the oscars the, the 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 viewing figures have been falling for years on end anyway really i think that's why there was some skepticism at first before it became apparent <laughs> the way the Will Smith and Chris Watt was actually staged to try and grab more interest. It's it's I don't know. I I, I from a quizzing perspective, I know people that that learn the Oscars all the time, and it's still asked about a lot in things like that because it's quantifiable information, I suppose, really. But yeah, like you, I I and also you know the Oscars has never held that much appeal for me because you have to stay up all night to watch it. And what's the point in staying up all night to watch it only to find out that I don't know? <coughs> excuse me, some load of old rubbish has won loads of films. And I feel this year for the Oscars because they could have told a really great story about some of the people that won mm-hmm. awards. It was really interesting. You know, only the third female director ever to win an award in Jane Campion the year after Chloe Zhao last year, um, an LGBTQ best supporting actress, a deaf best supporting actor who signed. There were lots of great, great stories to tell. And instead it became about one man thumping another, which doesn't that sum up history. But um I, yeah like you I, I i don't think even that chaos could it could could reignite my interest in award ceremonies no i mean like when kanye west interrupted taylor smith with his mm. i'm a i'm a let you finish uh, routine at the mtv awards i think so will smith's interruption will be remembered perhaps even more clearly because um these blessed award ceremonies are so bland dreary and there's too many of them. I mean, if there was just one award for t- for movies, one for TV and so on, but there are hundreds of them. And it's the same in music, isn't it? Where every magazine, every music channel on TV, they must all have award ceremonies. And this time of the year, there, there isn't an evening goes by without some hapless soul, as you say, doing a Gwyneth on stage somewhere in front of a 
green screen thanking their mama and the director and the key grip and uh, bursting oh, into tears. Oh, no, I have to say, I can't. I think this might have been the BAFTAs rather than the Oscars. Mm. I remember seeing a speech by Olivia Coleman once, which was excellent because um, she said that she wanted to thank her husband. She only thanked three people. She thanked her husband, somebody else, and she said, and her kids, and she said, and my friend Mel, because she'll laugh. And that, <laughs> that was the only people. I remember Anna Maxwell Martin winning the best out of BAFTA actress, I think it was, for Bleak House. And they said, is there anybody you'd like to thank? And she thanked the director, her mum, her brother and Gillian Anderson. And that was it. She had the stage. And I, I think when the Queen spoke at the opening ceremony for the 2012 Olympics, my friend counted how many words there were in her speech. 15 or 16 no, yeah. they were like god, god bless literally god bless hmt Koo, god bless the queen for literally giving the people what they wanted which was hello thanks everyone for coming or whatever whatever the posh version of that was and then sitting down i think if you in, imposed a 50 word rule on all speeches it'd be done in an hour wouldn't it and that's all right go uh, out uh, have a nice tea get it done in an hour and then go home that sounds that's, perfect that's it um by the way Many, many of us may may know that um, every nominee at the Oscars, and, and bear in mind, uh, many of those nom- nominees are as rich as Croesus already. They get, um, they get the goodie bag, don't they? They, they get, get the gift bag, bag yeah. which until recently, relatively recently, contained sort of things like samplers of a fragrance, some chocolates, maybe some booze, something like that. Yeah. Well, of course, we know the world has gone completely mad. Here's what's in the Oscar gift bag for 2022. Um, I'm just going to give you some of the items that were in the gift bag. A token for a four-day trip to Golden Door Spa, value $15,600. Wow, wow. I mean, that's quite cool. I'd quite like to do that. Liposuction or liposuction treatment, (laughs) $12,000 value. Side me up. A a detangling hairbrush from Tangle Teaser, $14. Wow. Uh, Yes, that's the best bit, I think. think So far, that's all I'd want. I love the mix between go to this very posh spa Mm. and experience something you can buy in your local old-fashioned hairdresser. That is great. (laughs) Or your your old-fashioned chemist. That's the sort of thing you get in those old-fashioned chemists with the big jars of liquid in the window. Virgin olive oil infused with edible gold flakes. Oh, nice. $72. Botox Mm. and more from Dr. Vasiljukevich in his Upper East Side office. Ten thousand dollars. I mean, it's the and more that alarms me. Well, in yeah, that that, that, that would be worrying. I'll it? just close the door, young lady. It's yes, exactly. no, thank you. Um, a trip to <laughs> Scotland with full butler service, fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> oh God! The whole package, the whole package value one hundred and forty thousand dollars. Just in case you were wondering, you know, worried about how Benedict Cumberbatch and Will Smith were going to be able to, yeah. yeah, for the challenges of life in twenty twenty two. Were you aware of the funny little, the funny little? sidebar on the on the trip to scotland by the way no no the trip I don't. to scotland also includes um a very small patch of land which which makes which um allows you to call yourself the lord and la- or laird of the laird or lady of somewhere God. and there was a very sharp comment by somebody on twitter do you remember the terrible video that those celebrities shared of them singing imagine oh, at the I end do. Of the mm. pandemic well someone said what what on earth is gail Godot going to do with a patch of land in scotland <laughs> sing imagine to it so uh, so yes yeah, so you could have been yeah, she could be Lady Gal Gadot of uh, of wherever it is. Anyway, yes, strange times as ever. They all exist in a different world to to the rest of us. 
coming next plagiarism in pop music is it an occupational hazard mm. that's right after this splendid cover by dum dum girls
the only way to listen to Smith's songs is cover versions because it's safe. You don't have to confront the downfall of, of Morrissey. Absolutely. I feel not dissimilarly about Bob Dylan, by the way. Although <laughs> I'm not putting Bob Dylan's behaviour in the same class as Morrissey's. Can I just say he just annoys me generally? <laughs> this is from an EP called He Gets Me High from 2011, Dum Dum Girls and There Is A Light That Never Goes Out. Um, in the in the early days of Twitter, I got drawn into a bit of a tangle with the former and now um, late children's TV entertainer, Keith Chegwin. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is a very on brand for you story, I feel. It, uh, I fear so. One, one of my friends, uh, Simon, who followed us both, had spotted that if I tweeted uh, a one liner or an amusing comment on the day's events, then as sure as night follows day, within 24 hours, Keith Chegwin would have not retweeted it, but copied the gag and no. tweeted it as his own oh no what like literal copy and paste not absolutely yeah absolutely and then uh, my friend simon delved a bit deeper and found um keith chegwin let us say borrowing jokes by uh also from from twitter and elsewhere uh milton jones oh, um wow. other sources as far ranging as jimmy carr and the simpsons keith what? chegwin was uh, posting them all as his own um this is back at oh, very early days, about uh, 13 years ago. Wow. Ed Byrne got involved in arguing this out with Chegwin, and Chegwin tried to bluff it out with ludicrous arguments about how he'd come up with the jokes himself or had, quote, remembered them from old. And um, <laughs> Chegwin, he also sent me an email of apology that managed to be both pompous and non-apologetic <laughs> great wow that's a charm isn't it um such claims of plagiarism are both they're, they're easy to prove but almost impossible to stop but alleged copycatting in music is becoming more and more of a of an issue and when you bear in mind that there's sixty thousand new songs uploaded to spotify every day I mean, there has to be a fair different. chance somebody yeah. somewhere has come up with your chords or melody line before. As we record this, Ed Sheeran is up before the beak uh, defending allegations that he released his song Shape of You mm. um, has enormous similarities to another tune written before his. Um, we don't know which way this case will go, but these plagiarism cases in music are increasing almost weekly, Jules. Yes, absolutely. And it seems to be yet another way. I don't know. There are some people that may have genuine cases, but to me, it feels like, are people treating this as another income stream? Is this people <laughs> on the make? Is this people thinking, well, I can't, I'm not making any money from Spotify because they pay me 0.001 pence for every 60,000 plays. So why don't I try and sue a more successful artist who they pay 70 pence a play and and see if I can, I can grift onto this? It does feel a bit grifty to me. There's this great piece by Mark Beaumont on the online enemy, having all having dismissed the enemy pretty summarily the other week. This is good writing i'm enjoying this um he opens by saying an old debunked myth once suggested that human beings only use around 10 percent of their brain at any one time the rest presumably was too busy memorizing snippets of every obscure song we've ever heard in <laughs> passing for the possible future use so you'd think from the plethora of lawsuits flying around at the moment and he points out so some of the allegations to me are so ridiculous because he makes the point well here that often pe younger artists, particularly in their songwriters, who are also still quite young in most cases, 
are being accused of stuff. Would they ever have heard this? Dua Lipa recently claimed a second, faced a second plagiarism claim over her 2020 track Levitating. Um, songwriters L. Russell Brown and Sandy Linzer have claimed that the opening melodies ripped off of sections of their tunes for both Corey Dale's Wiggle and a Giggle All Night from 1979 and Miguel Bose's 1980 number Don Diablo. And as Mark points out, if this is true, it would make Dua Lipa and her songwriting team the most formidable pop quiz team on the planet how would they know that and it's it's there's a there's a another i mean it's just line after line it also points out and i wasn't even aware this had happened you've heard of the rumble in the jungle in terms of being the most formidable matchup of all time i can also offer you uh, louise redknapp versus peppa pig apparently peppa pig was taken <laughs> to court in 2020 as they put it here if you like the pun peppa pig absolutely roasted in court over claims that she'd <laughs> nicked the melody of peppa party time from naked by louise redknapp or just louise as she was at the time he says here thankfully peppa didn't also swipe swipe any of the lines about sensuality and undressing me with your eyes it's probably just as well but what's so strange is that Ed Sheeran waiting the, the outcome of a high-profile case from a grime act called Sammy Switch and the songwriting partner Ross O'Donoghue over alleged similarities between the OIOI section of Shape of You and their 2015 song OY. And as Mark Beaumont puts it here, effectively boiling down to a judge deciding if anyone can legally own the pentatonic scale. And that's what it is, really. Mm. I mean, at the end of the day... Music has a limited number of notes, doesn't it? It has a limited number of chords and it has a limited number of of sort of ways in which you can put a melody together. It's really... and apparently the ironic thing was, was that Ed Sheeran was, they were more worried that he would have been accused of ripping off other things. He said he was concerned that it was too similar to No Diggity by Blackstreet. And they approached somebody else before they even got to TLC, I think, No Scrubs, before they even got to court because they were extremely concerned that they might try and sue. Which, I mean, none of this says great things about how inventive Ed Sheeran is, in fairness. But having said that, people continue to buy his records in landfill-sized um, sized amounts. So who am I to comment on that? But it it does feel to me like this is increasing um that it's a sign of desperation i think from some small artists that that might and it's sad that they think the best way to make money is to try and leech off someone else sure if an artist does like it does sort of rip someone else off then fine but the the artist in question here suing Ed Sheeran claimed they that you know when asked the, the not unreasonable question how would he ever have heard your obscure track they claimed that they sent him a copy on tape or whatever it was uh, for you know to say oh well, would you like you know we think could you let us know if you like this or not basically but as someone said. Ed Sheeran must have received hundreds of thousands of, of tracks and, you know, stuff like this, uh, you know, on, on a fairly daily basis. It seems quite implausible that this ever would have reached his attention, frankly. So I I have sympathy for artists that are ripped off. Having said that, to me, it feel, it, lots of these cases feel implausible, really. The idea that Dua Lipa and her songwriting team would have heard really minor hits from the late 70s and early 80s does not feel particularly plausible to me does anybody have the right to the pentatonic scale no they don't is my view i think i am and actually my i was in a weird situation where i i was sympathetic for a record that i actually really hated do you remember the blurred lines controversy a few years ago and they were successfully sued i think by martin marvin Gaye's estate for got to get it up uh, or got to give it up and it's i mean 
it's I thought they were really unlucky. There are many things to hate about blurred lines and it's mm. vile misogyny. However, I really I I'm really uncomfortable with the idea that that it wasn't the same tune. It bounced in a slightly similar way. And yeah, I'm not I'm not keen on uh, this does feel very grifty to me nowadays, I must admit. I agree with the argument in that excellent piece that you mentioned. I had a look at it myself in the New Music Express by Mark Beaumont. And I think he meant this humorously, but there's there's an element of truth in this, that if you write songs, um, the tip is send a, a copy to every manager and agent of <laughs> yeah, every that- major act. Because the, the, the lunacy of it all is that if a major performer has a success with a similar tune, which has distinct possibilities, as you say, mm. off you can go to my learned friends and claim they snaffled it from your idea that you sent in <laughs> 17 years ago to their former manager. Um, but I think the, the key difference between me, Milton Jones and Keith Chegwin is that the financial gain um for Chegwin was minimal to none it was mm-hmm. just annoying and and, and Chegwin's attitude yeah. didn't help but when you have performers like Ed Sheeran accruing enough millions to buy half of East Anglia then there's mm-hmm. far more financial interest for those pursuing him and uh, these in, these cases yeah. will increase for sure yeah I agree there's there's an incentive well mm. all the time that it's in that it's increasingly impossible to make large amounts of money from music from anywhere else yes they will yeah thanks very much for listening this week lovely to have you along i echo the sentiments of my excellent colleague um juliet you've been headhunted by a radio station where you're making your debut i yes this is all very exciting i'm delighted i was gonna i was gonna give smooth i was gonna park the yacht up from smooth sailing for a bit i was gonna go into dock and chill out for a bit and yeah i've been delighted to be invited to Noisebox Radio, which is a lovely new radio station that's launched online, um, noiseboxradio.com if you want to go to it. And so smooth sailing will now be sailing from a different port. Um, <laughs> there's uh, there's, uh, there's a, a sort of a a, a technical phrase where you have to log into a port on the server but i can't make i can't make that joke because i don't know enough about it but um yeah seven till nine on sunday evening um as per usually live it will be and and very much the same as previously so yacht rock mor classic pop easy listening chill and anything that genuinely generally fits the vibe so do tune in via noiseboxradio.com there are and on the site there are different ways you can ask alexa to play noisebox and you can you can use a pop-out player and there's different ways that you can stream through different radio apps so oh yeah but we'll break a leg with that for sure thank you very much really looking forward to it six years ago this month since prince died absolutely who knows where the time goes as we frequently Mm. um frequently just you know just i you blink and then it's three years later and i think the pandemic has given particular odd qualities to time but this week we have been experiencing weather to 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 extremes around these parts one minute it's the tropics the next minute it's siberia and it snowed uh towards the end of the week which made me think there is only one one song we can use for the commemorative program this week um this is prince and sometimes it snows in april
Tracy died soon after a long-fought civil war Just after I wiped away his last year I guess he's better off than he was before Than the fools he left here I used to cry for Tracy Cause he was my only friend Those kind of cars don't pass you every day Tracy, cause I want to see him again But sometimes, sometimes life ain't always the way Sometimes it snows in April Sometimes I feel So bad, sometimes I wish that life was never ending, and all good things they say never last. Springtime was always my favorite time of year. Time for lovers holding hands in the rain Now springtime only reminds me of Chase's tears Always cry for love, never cry for pain He used to say so strong to die on a friend of the dead that left me hypnotized. No staring at his picture, I realized. No one could cry the way my Tracy cried. Sometimes it snows in April Sometimes I feel so bad Sometimes, sometimes I wish That life was never ending But all good things they say Nevertheless, I often dream of heaven, and I know that Tracy's there. I know that he has found another friend.
has found the answer to all the April snow. Maybe one day I'll see my Tracy again. Sometimes it snows in Sometimes I feel so bad, so bad. Sometimes I wish that life was never ending. But all good things they say never last. But all good things they say. You've been listening to a Parish Council production.